Bible text this morning is the second commandment, which is uh, printed on your sheet. Um, but first, we're going to read um, from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 31, uh, which is found on page 182, if you have the church Bibles. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has appointed to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swear, swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you this day, that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him, if you seek him, with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. And the second commandment, um, which is printed on the service sheet. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the child and to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks be to God. June, thanks for reading and let's um, pray, shall we, as we come to look at those passages together. Our Father God, we thank you that you are speaking to us through these words of scripture. 
We pray, Lord God, that as we reflect uh, on what you're saying here, as well as we pray for the children in their groups as they listen to the different Bible teaching uh, that you're giving them, we pray, our Father, that as a whole family of God, you'd be growing us as uh, the community that you've made us to be and growing into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You might have heard the story of the child who told his teacher that he was drawing God. But no one knows what God looks like, said the teacher. Well, they will when I've finished, he said. (laughs) We worship an invisible God, an invisible God. And it's easy to see that as a problem that we need to try and fix pagan and pre-Christian religions often create images of what they think their gods might be like. They look at what they can see in the world around them and they project uh, pictures, images, statues maybe, of what they think the gods might be like. Often uh, they bear resemblance to the things we see in the world around us, maybe animal bodies and human faces and so on. But Christianity, building on the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, it insists that God is the unseen creator who is outside of this known universe, what we can see and touch. And therefore, we're told not to create images of him. And that can mean that we feel distanced from him, I think. We're so image-driven, aren't we? We want to be able to see and feel and touch what is real. And so the fact that we can't see God can make us feel far from him, can make us feel lonely in the universe. We can even feel that God may not be real if we can't see him. And so just like for that schoolboy, there's a very human instinct to try to create images of God's, to try to make him visible to us. This isn't about creating new gods. The first commandment, which we looked at last week, is about not worshipping other gods. But the second commandment is about not worshipping the right gods, but in the wrong way. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. But why? Why isn't this natural human instinct to try to make the invisible God more real to us, more more visible, more tangible? Why isn't this desire an entirely good thing? We want to engage our hearts more. We want to help our worship. Surely those are good things. Well, let's look first at the danger of images. The danger of images, uh, first of all, is that they make us creators and they make God a creature. Just look at the words that are used in the second commandment. It's there on your sheet inside the handout. You shall not make for yourself an image, it says. When we paint or carve an image of God, we're flipping around the right order of creation. We start to make ourselves the creator and God the one who's created. 
It might be done with sincere motives, but actually it echoes what went wrong back in the Garden of Eden, when Eve and Adam listened to a creature, the serpent, rather than the creator. It's actually a mistake the Israelites are going to make only a few chapters later in the book of Exodus. They got tired of waiting for Moses up the mountain where he was hearing God's laws and they made for themselves a golden calf. It seems they didn't think they were making a false god. They thought they were making the true God visible in the form of an animal. But in doing so, they made themselves creators and God a creature. As Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, remember this Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy second law, 40 years later as they prepare to exit the wilderness. And if you've got page 182 open, you can see there at verse 15, Moses says to them, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's another name for Sinai, out of the fire. Therefore, he says, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like an animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. Do not make for yourself any image. Don't reduce God to a creature. One of the particular problems with reducing God to an image is that images limit God. The minute you create an image of God, you constrain him to that form in your imagination. Maybe the most famous image of God is the wonderful painting by Michelangelo on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I'm going to put it up for illustration purposes. I'm sure you've all seen it before. But images are dangerous. I wonder whether our idea of God is formed more by this one famous, very well-executed painting than it is by the whole 66 books of the Bible. I wonder if your image of God is of a powerful, kind of kindly old man uh, in that image. The minute we create an image of God, we constrain our sense of what he's like. If we have a statue of him, we instinctively will behave as if he's there where the statue is and not anywhere else. We don't mean to, of course, we might have entirely good motives to aid our worship, but actually it has the effect of limiting God. And so the third danger of making images is that images seduce us away from God. It's ironic, isn't it? The instinct is to create images to try to improve our relationship with God, but he knows our hearts better than we know ourselves. Just look again at Deuteronomy chapter 4. From verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day that God spoke to you at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol, an image, formed like a man or a woman or any animal or bird or creature that moves along the ground or any fish. And verse 19, and when you look up to the sky and see the sun and moon and stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God 
has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping them. The Lord knows how our hearts work. We start off wanting things to help us worship the invisible God. But before we know it, we end up effectively constrained in our worship to the thing that's seen at the expense of the thing that's unseen. Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. You might be well-intentioned, but don't assume you're wiser than God. We can easily be led astray from the glory of the immortal God. We're reminded of what we saw last week. Morality is relational. Did you notice the relational language in the, first, in the second commandment? They're on your sheet. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. If we truly love God, we won't want to provoke his jealousy. We'll listen to how he wants to be worshipped rather than thinking we know better. What does all this mean for us practically? Well, it means, I think, that we need to be very careful about any images or statues of God. You can't be talking about not making any images at all under any circumstances. God is not anti-painting or carving. The temple, for example, was full of carvings of trees and flowers and so on. But we mustn't try and make the invisible God visible to us through our own creative efforts. He has chosen to be invisible to us for a reason. I think there's a particular temptation to image making when it comes to teaching our children. Young children are very visual learners, and so we want to be creative. But also, we must be very careful. I don't think the second commandment stops us making pictures of Jesus. Um, God has chosen to clothe himself in flesh here on earth. But even there, we need to take care that we use a variety of images and emphasize to our children that we don't really know what Jesus looked like. The Gospels don't tell us how tall Jesus was, what colour his eyes were, or even the colour of his skin. We need to take care over our imaginations as well. We might not physically be creating images of God, but we do it in our mind's eye, don't we? Wherever we say something like, I like to picture God as, well, then we're on dangerous ground. And sometimes, rather than through images, we try to manufacture a sense of closeness to God through uh, generating a sense of awe, through maybe special buildings or music or uh, smells and so on. Now, I don't think that's directly what the second commandment is talking about, 
but I think there's enough in it to warn us against being enticed into bowing down to created things and drawn into worshipping them rather than God himself. Don't underestimate the fickleness of the human heart. Don't provoke our loving God to jealousy. So there's some of the dangers of images, but maybe that leaves us feeling further from God than ever. Are we left then simply with a distant and unseen God? Are we condemned to a feeling of cosmic loneliness, an unseen and therefore unknowable and unreal God? Not at all. Let's move on to see that actually we have far better ways of knowing God as we look at the blessing of revelation. Now I've left your sheet blank uh, for these points. I hope they're simple enough for you to remember afterwards or even uh, just jot them down as we go. When we read the second commandment carefully, we're reminded that actually God has revealed himself to us. A more literal translation of the second commandment um, says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Where else do we hear those key words, image and likeness? God has actually put his image and likeness on the earth, hasn't he? Where has he done that? He's done it in us, in humanity. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We are God's image and likeness on the earth. In fact, it's as we're made more like God that we see godliness in one another more and more. It's hinted at actually in Deuteronomy chapter four. Verse 20 says this, Moses speaking to the Israelites, as for you, he says, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. The iron smelting furnace is the place where you would forge images, statues. You see, the Israelites were meant to be formed in godliness, in the likeness of God through their experience of suffering in Egypt and God's rescue of them through the wilderness. And it's exactly the same for us today. We must grow in godliness through many trials and through God's grace to us. And therefore we see God's image and likeness in one another and especially as we relate rightly to one another in Christian community. So if we want to see God, come to church. Christian community, the people of God relating rightly to one another is one of the ways that we see a glimpse imperfectly, but truly a glimpse of what God himself is like. That's the first blessing of revelation in humanity, relating rightly to one another in godliness. The second, of course, flows from it. We see God in the ultimate man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Maybe you know the famous New Testament verses. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. 
John chapter 1, verse 18. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Again, it's not about how Jesus looked physically. He revealed what God is like through his actions, his behaviour, especially through his humble, self-controlled giving of himself at the cross. It's as the message of the gospel sinks into our hearts that we get to see God most clearly. And that points us on to the third aspect of how God reveals himself to us. We may not have a visible God, but we have a speaking God. In Bible imagery, there's a contrast between seeing and hearing. The eyes are the organ of judgment. Remember Eve and Adam in the garden. It was when they saw that the fruit of the forbidden tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye that they reached out and took it and then their eyes were opened to good and evil. The end of the book of Judges, famously, we read that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The eyes are the organ of personal judgment. The ears, by contrast, they're about humble obedience. When we listen to someone, it means that we not just hear them, but we obey them. It's what we say to our kids, isn't it? Listen to me. We don't just mean hear me, we mean hear and obey. Just have a look at Deuteronomy 4. Again, actually, the verses before those that we read. Page 182, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. Earlier on in Moses' sermon, he says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them? the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? We have a God who is not distant because he's invisible. He's near to us because he's audible. We can hear him speak to us in scripture and we can speak to him in prayer. Verse 12 of that same chapter. The Lord, your God, the, the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments. So literally in the Hebrew, it's the Ten Words, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. The Ten Commandments actually themselves are a great demonstration of communication through words. We're told that a picture is worth a thousand words, but it would be very hard to make a picture of what the Ten Commandments say. God chose the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, to go inside the Ark of the Covenant, at the heart of the temple, his dwelling place amidst his people. He dwells among us by his word. It's as we hear God that we're drawn close to him. Our relationship with God is through listening to him speak to us. And we listen with faith and obedience. As the second commandment um, comes towards its conclusion, it says, those who love me and keep my commandments. If we love God, 
we will listen, believe, and obey. And actually, it's as we do that, that we ourselves become better images of God ourselves. And so he is seen in humanity more clearly as his word changes us from within. So let's go back to where we started. It's easy to think that having an invisible God is a problem. Like the schoolboy, we've got a natural instinct to try to make God visible to us, to picture what he's like, to have him presented before our eyes. But he himself warns us that that's fraught with danger. We end up usurping God. We make, him, we make ourselves his creators. We limit God and we seduce ourselves away from him. The very thing that we think will improve our relationship with him makes him jealous and destroys our relationship. Instead, let's listen to how he himself chooses to reveal himself to us. He's chosen to reveal himself through humanity. So let's strive to godliness ourselves. And let's immerse ourselves in godly Christian community where his image and likeness is best displayed on earth. He's chosen to reveal himself in Jesus Christ. So let's get to know Jesus as he's revealed through his mighty acts in history. And he's chosen to reveal himself to our ears more than our eyes. So let's listen to him in his word to us in the scriptures. You might not be a great reader, that's fine. The scriptures were, were designed to be heard more than read. Listen to an audio Bible, keep coming back to church, hearing the scriptures um, read and preached. And make sure you're part of a weekly small group. Maybe that group, the Christian Basics um, course that Merv mentioned earlier. In a weekly small group, you have the best of all worlds, words, worlds, the best of all words, worlds. You hear God speak in the Bible. You get to know Jesus as the gospel sinks into our, our hearts. And we see God imaged by the people around us as we get to know a small group of believers really well. And through all these things, we'll be preparing ourselves for the final consummation of our relationship with God. All of the Bible is building up to the moment when we see God face to face. That feeling we might have of distance from an unseen God is part of the experience of being bound to this earth while our God is in heaven. But there is a day coming when heaven and earth are reunited, a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells visibly on the throne in the midst of the new creation, where every eye will see him, where we will meet with him face to face. Amidst the imperfection of this fallen world, the distorted glimpses of God in one another, the struggle to see the Jesus of the gospels, the battle to take the scriptures to the heart. Let's be longing for the day when all is made new and we can enjoy perfect relationship with our God forever. Until that day, we walk by faith and not by sight. And our faith is fed by the scriptures and as we pray to the Lord. Let's pray that now, shall we? Let's pray.
Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we confess that often we think we know better than you and we go pursuing uh, your image in ways that you've told us not to. Father, guard our hearts, show us where we're in subtle danger. And instead, Father, will you satisfy us through your word, through faithful, godly relationship with one another, and through knowing Jesus as you've revealed him in the gospel. Father, we pray that these things will nourish us, enrich us, and draw us close to you as we long for that final day, the day still to come, when we will see you face to face for eternity. In Jesus' name.